Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. All right, uh, let's get started with today's event. Thanks very much for joining us here at the Heritage Foundation on a day when the rain has condescended to hold off. I appreciate that and appreciate everyone joining us here today. I want to give a special welcome to our audience on C-SPAN's Book TV. I dare say that our speaker today will be featured on and off on C-SPAN for the next six months, and in his case, absolutely deservedly so. I want to start off by giving a sort of slightly personal anecdote and introduction to our speaker today. Many years ago, many, many years ago now, I taught international relations at the master's level at Yale. Um, and I always started my first class by giving my students a quotation from the work of John A. Hobson's Imperialism of Study, first published in 1902. Hobson, just to give you a brief bio, was a left-wing economist, a noted opponent of the Boer War, and a member of the Independent Labor Party after World War I. From the heritage point of view, he was probably not a sound man. Uh, but nonetheless, on page 11 of Imperialism of Study, in my edition, Hobson writes, quote, nationalism is a plain highway to internationalism, and if it manifests divergence, we may well suspect a perversion of its nature and its purpose. Nationalism is a plain highway to internationalism. I'm not sure if our guest today would agree with that sentiment or not. I quote it not to agree or disagree with it, but to make the point that there is a world that we've lost, a world in which nationalism was, even to a man of the left like Hobson, a respectable and constructive belief. Not only have we lost that world, we've lost track of the ideas that made Hobson's claim intelligible. After all, he put it on page 11. He evidently expected that his readers would understand what he was saying without a whole lot of preliminary introduction. But how many readers today understand what Hobson was saying? I can tell you that in my years of teaching, only one student who I gave this quotation to was ever able to make any sense of it at all. So we really have lost the ability to understand the idea that nationalism, even from the perspective of Hobson's point of view, is constructive. And that's a problem. It's not just a problem because we can't understand Hobson and the many, many other scholars and statesmen who wrote and worked in that tradition. It's a problem because that tradition is largely responsible for the world as it is organized today, into a world of states and, in some cases, nation states. Today, I'm proud to introduce a speaker who not only knows that tradition, but who can defend that tradition, not just as a good thing in its time, but as a good thing today. Dr. Yoram Hazoni received his BA from Princeton in 1986 and his PhD from Rutgers in 1993. In 1994, he co-founded the Shalem Center in Jerusalem and is today the president of the Herzl Institute in Jerusalem. 
He is also the director of the John Templeton Foundation's project in Jewish philosoph philosophical theology. Make sure I get that right. He is the author of four books, including the book on which he will be speaking today. And let me always display the book for everyone's interest here. Uh, the Virtue of Nationalism, published last month by Basic Books. After he speaks, we will, of course, have time for audience Q&A. And after that, he will be signing copies of The Virtue of Nationalism, which is on sale outside the auditorium. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Yoram Hazoni to the Heritage Foundation. Doctor. Thank you, Ted, for, for the warm welcome. And thank you all for coming out. It's a stormy season, season in the United States. Uh, both in terms of the weather and uh, politically. And uh, my, I, I'm sort of in an unusual position because generally wherever I go, people accuse me of, of provoking all sorts of unnecessary troubles. Um, here, I, I'm in the unaccustomed position of um, maybe, maybe being able to contribute some ideas that, that could, could calm the waters a little bit but I don't want to promise too much. I don't have a good track record in calming the waters. Um, let, let, let's start with, uh, with the immediate obvious background. Um, nationalism is uh, just about, is almost certainly the, the most discussed political idea uh, of the last several years. Um, it's... Uh, uh, accused and associated with an extraordinary range of uh, of, uh, uh, of evils, uh, but it's beyond that. It's also correctly applied in um, analyzing all sorts of important per, uh, current events, uh, beginning with uh, uh, Brexit, the uh, United Kingdom's vote to to leave the so the, to leave the European <laughs> Union. Well. What can I say? <laughs> some, some analogies are just called for. To leave the European Union um, in uh, uh, 2016, nationalism is associated with the rise of Donald Trump in the United States in 2016. It's associated with, uh, with uh, electoral victories for openly nationalist governments in Italy, uh, across Eastern Europe, and uh, in other countries in the democratic world, uh, among them uh, Israel, India, uh, and Japan. Uh, it's not an exaggeration to say that the democratic world has taken a turn towards nationalism. And uh, understanding what this is and what it's about is probably the, the most important uh, challenge for a political analyst or a political theorist um, in our time. Adding to the interest in the subject is the fact that we just haven't seen anything like this since World War II. I mean, at, at least. Um, the, the progression of, uh, uh, in, 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 in the direction of movements that are reasserting in the democratic world um, a, a desire for national independence, for self-determination, the claim that the uh, governing uh, ethos, the governing policies of, of the major Western powers 
are against self-determination, that they're suppressing self-determination, it comes to many as an astonishing uh, and original and interesting uh, fact. But as I said before, most people seem to see it as something dangerous, something horrifying. Now, I'm not going today to defend specific individuals, specific administrations, specific political parties. But I do want to defend the trend itself. Okay? In other words, I, I don't feel, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know whether the Italian nationalists are capable of govern, governing Italy well. I, I don't even know how the Trump administration is going to turn out. Maybe you do, but I don't. So I, I'm not going to be placing bets on, on, on particular nationalist governments. What I want to focus on is the question of whether the trend itself is to be considered frightening, horrifying, terrible, destructive, or whether, in fact, the, the trend in the direction of more national independence, a world of independent national states, whether that's to be welcomed. Now, I'm going to be speaking about, uh, uh, about nationalism and imperialism. Uh, this is an uh, a oversimplification you know, like like any 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 piece of uh, of uh, bold political theory, uh, it simplifies the material uh, always to a certain extent too much in order to clarify. It simplifies to clarify so that we can understand. Uh, that means that um, that I'll be uh, making certain assertions that I'm then going to have to hedge and pull back a bit, and I promise to apologize. When, I, when, when you call me on it, and I will hedge and pull back a bit. That doesn't, I think, at all undermine the value of the basic effort. We have here a, uh, a subject that is extremely widely discussed. The subject is drenched in confusion, and I believe that it's possible uh, to, to clarify it in a way that it makes sense. So, um, so two definitions. First of all, uh, when, when, when we speak of nationalism, what, what are we talking about? Um, in, in, in my book, I refer to a, uh, a well-established political tradition um, that uh, sees nationalism as a principled political standpoint that understands the world is governed best when it consists of independent nations that are permitted to chart their own uh, constitutional, uh, religious, and legal course according to their own lights. And this is traditionally, uh, in nationalist circles, opposed to imperialism, where imperialism is understood as any attempt to, uh, to, to view the political order of the world as governed best when, as much as possible, it's brought under a single government or regime of law uh, that is then enforced on as many nations as possible and theoretically the entire planet if that can be practically pulled off. Now, these, these, are, these conflicting definitions reflect an ancient political argument. Right? They're, they're, they're not something new. There, there is in academia, you, probably most of you are familiar, there is in academia a tradition, uh, an academic tradition, of describing nationalism as though it's some kind of uh, modern 
phenomenon, something post-French Revolution or maybe a little bit after that. I don't see it that way. I understand uh, that I understand uh, the nation to be uh, something that can be identified all the way going going all the way back into antiquity, uh, and in fact, in in the classics of Western civilization, we have uh, among the, the 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 pillars of the classical tradition, we have the Hebrew Bible, which uh, is a text that um, or a set of texts that, among other things. Um, deals extensively with the questions that we're going to be talking about, with the questions of, of, of tribes, nations, empires, and takes positions with respect to them. And in the biblical tradition, um, the, the, the world consists of nations. The world consists of, of nations, nations and peoples. And in fact, early modern political theory um, is, uh, uh, is very largely indebted uh, as, certainly, especially in, in the Anglo-American tradition, to the translation of the Bible, to the translation of the Bible into English, so that if you want to know what do our uh, the, the, uh, our forefathers in the Anglo-American tradition, what what did they understand by nation? Well, uh, one of the easiest ways to do it is to open up the King King James Bible, which uses the terms nation and people thousands of times and to understand what what it was that they were reading in their bible when they read their when when they read the bible every day and and how they learned what a nation is from that now the 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 history of western political thought can be understand understood as kind of a seesaw battle between on the one hand a roman heritage the Roman heritage is simply imperialistic. The Romans, much like the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Persians before them, uh, understood uh, their role as to conquer as much of the world as possible. And by the way, this is not just some kind of brutal will to power. They, uh, they, 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 they had a humanizing side to it, a, a theory of what they were doing. The theory was, and this theory is um, for all the differences that these ancient empires have between them, this they, they share in common, that every one of these universal empires, which sets out to bring the four corners of the earth to submission, they all claim to be doing it for the same reasons, which, which are to bring peace and to bring prosperity to the world. Right? This is a view that says the world is divided into tri tribes and nations, and they're, they're all killing each other. And the purpose of empire is to impose a single law which will bring peace and prosperity. And this Roman, Roman vision of bringing peace and prosperity, the, 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 the Pax Romana, uh, as it's called, uh, then is the inspiration for repeated attempts to do just that all through Western history. And th those attempts include uh, the, the, the Holy Roman Empire, which was, was, was a German project, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Third Rome of the, of the Russian Empire, which also saw itself as, as, as descended from Rome. Napoleon, of course, uh, who, 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 who saw his project of uniting Europe and then governing the entire world as inspired by the Roman Empire and specifically by Caesar, and in its, it, its own twisted, distorted way, uh, Nazi Germany is also a, a, uh, a, an attempt to do Rome one better according to the lights of its theorists. This, the other side of the seesaw is this biblical tradition. The Bible rejects these empires. 
and puts on the table a different form of political government, which it considers to be just. Right? And that is the, 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 the government of a self-determining independent state living among many other such self-determining independent states. So Moses speaks to God of heaven and earth. And so you would think that God of heaven and earth would tell him the same thing that the other gods tell the other, uh, the, the other national leaders. Go out and conquer the four corners of the earth and bring them to submission so we can have peace and prosperity. But that's not what happens. What happens is the God of Israel, as far as we know, is the first God in history to give borders to his people. And we find in Deuteronomy that Mo Moses telling the people that God has given us borders because he's given the other lands to other nations so that they can have their independence. And if we cross those borders, we get punished. Right? Underlying this idea of, uh, is, 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 is a vision of what could possibly bring freedom and well-being to the world, which is at odds with imperialism. This is a, a, a view that suggests that if each nation pursues its own traditions and its own understanding, then the world will more quickly get to justice than if one seeks to impose its understanding upon all. Now, this Jewish vision would be, you know, just kind of an acad of academic interest if it weren't for the impact that it has had on Christianity and Christendom. But we see that in the Middle Ages, uh, the, 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 the Old Testament has a shaping, uh, uh, a forming influence on nations as diverse as England, France, the Poles, the Czechs. But it comes really into its own in early modernity with Protestantism and, the, and, and especially the, the Calvinist and Anglican attempts to re-envision Christianity in closer dialogue with Hebrew scripture. It's this Western Christian, uh, Western Protestant uh, engagement with the Hebrew Bible, which leads to the modern national states, to the independence, the, the declaration of independence, we can say, of Henry VIII and the English from the Holy Roman Empire and from the papacy in 1534, to an actual literal de declaration of independence by the Dutch in 1581. If you haven't read it, read it. It's an Remarkable 200 years earlier, earlier, how much like the American Declaration it really is. And, and then the, uh, uh, the, the, the independence of, the official formal independence of, of, of Switzerland and of France and of, and, and of other nations. By the time you get to the middle of the 17th century, we have a world order that is beginning to look like something that's familiar to us. Different kinds of nations, some Lutheran, some Calvinist, some, some Roman Catholic, they still fight wars. It's not that this, this is a utopia that's brought peace, but they compete within a framework of recognizing the legitimacy of the other nations, which is uh, unprecedented. There's a formal legitimacy that the other nations have, even though their religious and constitutional traditions are completely different from ours. Each one looks at the others. Maybe they detest them, but they grant them legitimacy. And that has been for three centuries, at least, up until, let's say, up until World War II. That vision of a world in which I, I possibly cannot, cannot abide by the, the, the constitutional religious theories of the other state, the other nation, 
but I grant it legitimacy, and I don't have a goal of trying to snuff it out of the world anymore. That eventually becomes the, 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 the world that, that we know in the 20th century, a, a, a world in which nation after nation around the globe is granted independence or seizes independence, some of them with better results, some of them with worse. Now, we all know that that's not the way the story ends. As late as World War II, uh, the, the Allies still thought that they were fighting for a world of independent nations. The radio broadcasts of, 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 of the Americans and the British emphasized that Europe is being held captive, that the, the, the nations of Europe are captive to, to German imperialism, to Nazi imperialism. And the goal is to liberate them, not in order to bring them under a different empire, but in order to give each nation its freedom. That's what national freedom used to mean, is that you, you'd kick out the empire and then you'd let them determine their own course. Of course, that's not the way things ended either because, because the Soviet Union was, as you know, a universalist empire seeking to bring peace and prosperity to the entire globe by imposing its vision. So many of the people who I know personally who were deeply involved with fighting the Cold War in its, its last stages, when I, when I speak to them, they still remember things as that way. They didn't see themselves as fighting in order to create a, a new world order that would be imposed by America. On the contrary, they saw themselves as fighting to free nations, to free the nations, the independent nations of the globe, from the threat of being controlled by the Soviet Union. Now, I, I think things, uh, obviously these things are, are not sudden and there's a progression in it, but I think that we can point to the fall of the Berlin Wall as kind of a turning point in the way that Americans and Europeans thought about the independence of nations. Uh, this has been, had been cooking already since the 1950s and the 1960s. But by 1989, the Berlin Wall falls, the, 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 the communist menace evaporates. Within a couple of years, it's gone. And as you know, there were voices in the United States, individuals like uh, Irving Kristol, Gene Kirkpatrick, who said, we've won our war, we freed the world, now let's bring the boys home and let's focus on, on the serious troubles that we as Americans have at home. They were kind of pushed aside by events, as was Margaret Thatcher, who was deposed by her own uh, party, the conservatives, in, in 1990 because she wasn't sufficiently sympathetic to the European Union and the idea of dismantling the sovereignty of nations in Europe. And beginning around that time, 1990, 1991, from the moment that George H.W. Bush, President Bush, declares the, the arrival of a new world order, there's an astonishing consensus. Democrats and Republicans, Labour and, and, and Conservatives in the UK, and all the major parties across Europe, there's an astonishing consensus that really what needs to be done is to establish a new world order, a, a single rules-based international order to be imposed where necessary by force, which, which, which means American, principally American force. And this becomes a project for an entire, for an entire generation. President Bush declares that for a thousand generations, mankind has struggled and sought to try to bring about this kind of a new world order and has failed, but it's going to happen now. 
in the 1990s. These are astonishing things. When I heard this, it sent chills down my spine. What was his vision? He said, we're going to replace the rule of the jungle with the rule of law. The globe is going to be brought under the rule of law. Now, this is an absolutely remarkable claim. An American president not faced with with the, with the Cold War against against the Soviet Union, but out of a a, a, a vision, he said he, he said he wasn't good at the vision thing, but he was pretty good. <laughs> now I remember I I remember as a kid, uh, the first time I, I remember where I was the first time I was probably about twelve, the first time that I heard John Lennon's Imagine. Okay, and I just thought when I was twelve, I thought this is this is just a terrible terrible song. <laughs> And, but, but I remember thinking about this, that, that at least, I mean, it's just a pop song, right? It's just a singer. But a lot of people grew up on this. And, uh, and when, when we reached you know, the, the, last, the last 30 years, one, one American administration after another, European governments, have, uh, have, have, have bought into the idea that, well, isn't it possible for us to just have one law and one set of values and everybody's going to play by the rules, as various uh, American leaders have said, play by the rules. And the flip side of it was that when you don't play by the rules, well, then, then some, somebody's going to enforce them. Who, who, who's, who's the somebody? Well, well, well we know that that, that, that became the, the, the mission of uh, American troops with, with allied contingents uh, in Yugoslavia, in Iraq, in Libya, in Afghanistan. That became, you know, a, 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 a way of advancing a certain kind of world. Now, my claim is that that kind of world is completely undesirable. Right? It's simply not desirable. It's, it's a utopian fantasy. And it's a utopian fantasy. A utopian fantasy means it can't possibly work. I, I also think that even if, you, if, if it could maybe sort of work, it's still not desirable. And I'll try in a few minutes to give you a sense um, of why I say that so. The, the idea of a world of diverse nations, we can compare it to, um, you know, the, the, the kinds of economic theories that, uh, that conservatives, many, many, many liberals embrace. Right? When we talk about the economy, we don't think that anybody should be planning it. We don't think that there needs to be one central decision-making body somewhere or even a net of them in order to determine how an economy works. Why? Because we believe that the diver diversity of powers, that the dispersion of power and the competition among different firms, that that gives the possibility of maximum innovation. Competition will give the incentive. This is so the theory goes. Competition will give the incentive for innovation. Innovation will lead to remarkable discoveries and advances. And where one company is able to advance by discovering something and su succeeding in it, then others will be able to imitate it. And good things will therefore be able to spread throughout the economy. Right? N notice that the, the competition, the dispersion of power and competition is the key. Now, we're also familiar with this theory from, from, from domestic political theory. The, the freedom of the Anglo-American tradition arises in a context in which instead of having a single uh, power that is executive and legislative and has all the power, the, the Anglo-American tradition divides among multiple, 
multiple branches of government that compete with one another in order to maintain maximum freedom in the system. And these are commonplace ideas. But when it comes to the world order, to the entire planet, to the laws that are going to be imposed on the planet and the, and, and, and the enforcement mechanisms, all of a sudden, all these free marketers, people who understand the importance of dispersion of power and, and competition and innovation, all of a sudden, they become central planners. All of a sudden, a single rule of law is, can, can be imposed on the entire planet because somebody knows what those laws are, and it's not going to do any damage. It'll actually supposedly do good to plan the, 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 the political order for the entire planet. Now, I, personally, I think that this is kind of crazy stuff. And, and the, 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 the only thing that makes it not crazy is the fact that we've been, been doing it for decades, and so it almost seems kind of normal. But I, I, I think it's kind of crazy stuff. What's the alternative? Well, the, the alternative is, uh, is, is what used to be called um, balance of power, dispersion of power. And by the way, the pur purpose of balance of power among m multiple competing centers, multiple competing independent nations, the purpose of that, we were, I was taught when I was in college and graduate school that the purpose of it was supposed to be to bring peace and stability. But I actually went back and I read Vattel, the great theorist of balance of power, and, and I couldn't find it. What, what you find in Vattel is a fascinating thing. The reason for the multiplicity of, of governments in, in a diverse system of, of states, of nations, of independent nations, Vattel writes, is freedom. The only way to have freedom in the system is to prevent any one power from growing so strong that it can impose the law on all the other powers. In other words, the, the, the classic theorist of early modern freedom in the international arena, his view is precisely the opposite of what administrations have been pursuing for a generation. His view is that the only way to prevent tyranny from developing in the system is to make sure that no state, that no power, that no system of law is sufficiently strong so that it can be imposed on everyone. Now, there's, that, that's stated in the negative, but we can also state it, state it in the positive. The competition among nations in early modern Europe brought most of the good things that we associate with, 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 with the modern world. The competition among nations gave us the, the, uh, uh, the, the ideals of, of, of limited government, of uh, ex experiments in democracy, of uh, the, the, uh, um, uh, the, the balance of power among branches of government, the concern for individual liberties, the free market. All of these things, politically, economically, all of them arise within nation states. Holland, England, Scotland, the United States. They're part of the competition among independent national states, each one doing its own experiments, each one an experiment of what it means to, to, to live, as a, live as a nation. And by the way, you can also add the great advances in, in science and, and, and art. You, there wouldn't have been a Newton, an Isaac Newton, without the intense competition of the English who found French rationalism to be appalling and thought that the English could do science better. There wouldn't be the modern university system, which you, know, you may like more or less, without the, without the Prussian disdain for the way that English and the French do scholarship and the, the, the competition and the, the, the desire to say, well, we can do it better. 
and you, and, and you can just c continue. Almost anything that we value arises from the modern national state system. It can be uh, a, a development of earlier biblical or Christian or other kinds of, of developments, but, they, but, but these things explode into their... Uh, in, in, into, in, into the powerful reality that we know today out of the competition of, of independent national states. Let me just point to... Um, uh, let, let me just emphasize with respect to freedoms internally in nations because, of course, a world of independent nations means that some will be freer than others. Some will be more to our liking than others. I mean, they're all not going to just do what we want them to do. That's the whole idea, is that a world of independent nations means diversity, even great diversity. And that means that we won't appreciate necessarily every single thing that's going to happen in different nations. But consider the following alternative. We have on record not one single example in all of history of an imperial state, a state whose, which is defined by the concept that the nations of the world should be brought as much as possible under a single rule of law. We have not one example of such a state that developed traditions of limited government. We have not one example of such a state that developed traditions of, of democracy and power sharing among the tribes within the entire empire. There's no such thing. The fact is that, that it's the national cohesion of the national state the mutual loyalty of a given people, which allows experiments to take place, and that's the basis for all of our freedoms. I'll say one last thing, and then I'll stop. We live today uh, in a world in which tolerance is frighteningly disappearing, tolerance of alternative points of view. Right? This is obvious throughout the West, but it's, not, it's plenty obvious in, in, in the United States. Uh, when I was when, when when I was growing up in college and I was publishing my 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 uh, conservative magazine at my on my college campus a generation ago, you know, of course there were plenty of people who didn't like us because we were conservatives, and there were plenty of people who said so, but nobody ever dreamed. I mean, none of us, none of the people who were involved, ever dreamed that if we had a strong point of view about some issue of public importance, that we wouldn't write it in our you know, in our, in, in our college conservative magazine. All of us believed in, in, in this, this idea that, that ideas that are within the framework of being, you know, in, in, to some degree uh, um, um, moral, decent, according to some group of people, that you could just say them. And people might not like you, but they wouldn't destroy your career. They wouldn't destroy your life. Right? They, they wouldn't take you out and effectively eliminate you as a participant in, uh, in the public life of the country because you expressed an opinion that wasn't the one that, that was permitted. Now, I, unfortunately, I raise my children today to think twice and three times before they express their opinions. And I'm not proud of this. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed and I'm frightened. I find, it, I find it horrifying that this is where we've gotten. And one of the most important things that I think that we, we can do in attempting to analyze and theorize about what is going on is to figure out how it could be that America went so quickly from being a country in which dissent and, and new ideas and innovative ideas and different ideas were tolerated to one in which if you say the wrong word, you're finished.
Now, my, my proposal is that this is a direct result of the transition of American leadership, American elites, from a mindset, a nationalist mindset, which says, in our nation, we do it one way. In other nations, they'll do it a different way. And even though we don't necessarily approve, that's the way the world is best governed, is when, when we tolerate the existence of other regimes that don't do things our way, of other traditions that don't do things our way. At some point in the last generation, leading Americans, public figures of all kinds, have made a transition to an imperialist mindset, one that says, my Marxist point of view is the only possible true point of view, or my liberal point of view is the only possible true point of view. And I don't think that any nation in the world should be exempt from having my point of view be the one that is ultimately imposed on it. And a person who thinks like that, a person who has an imperialist mindset, who can't really understand how someone could think something different, even in principle, that's the, exactly the kind of person who, when it comes to politics at home, is going to be willing to say, well, you know what, there's really only one legitimate point of view. I mean, if, I'm, if I think there's only one legitimate point of view for the whole planet, then how could it possibly be that here at home that I would allow my very neighbors to think something different? Tolerance is one of those precious things that arose within the order of independent nations in early modernity. It arose in the wake of a, of, of a political order in which the states, the different kinds of governments, officially tolerated one another. And in the wake of that, some of them began, be, began also to, to, to extend toleration to their own citizens. We need to find a way out of where we are. The best way to find, the best way to get out of where we are, I believe, is to revisit the imperialist assumptions that we ourselves have adopted. Those, those are strong words. I understand that they're not immediately persuasive to everybody. But I, I'd like you to take them home and think about them. The imperialist that we have, each of us inside of us, that says, no, 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 no. I have the answer. We Americans, we have the answer. Or we Germans, we have the answer. The, the Poles can't just do run their country the way they want to because we Germans, we have the answer. We know how the Poles are supposed to run it. That's the kind of thinking that means that in Italy, a, a, uh, a finance minister that's, that's proposed by an elected, democratically elected government can in effect be deposed on, uh, on, on say-so from Brussels because, because the, the, the Germans and the other elites, they have a better understanding of who should be the finance minister in Italy. And it's easy to, easy to complain about the Europeans. That kind of thinking has come to America. And it's easy to complain and say it's only on the left. That kind of thinking has also come to the conservatives in America. And we need to find a way to overcome it. I believe that we can. Our traditions are healthy. They're good. They're strong. We can overcome it. Anyway, that's why I wrote the book. Uh, I promise that I'll, I'll, I'll hedge and apologize where necessary so you can start testing me on it. Thank you all. Thank you very much. That was that was wonderful and wonderfully thought provoking. Uh, I'm going to take the normal uh, prerogative of the host to ask. I'm going to I'm going to ask a couple questions, and one is perhaps somewhat supportive, uh, and and one is perhaps somewhat challenging. So you can you can answer 
You can, you can duck and dodge, or, or you can take them both in the order that you prefer. Uh, you write on page uh, 26, and, and you also said something very similar on page 24 of the book, that uh, in some senses, no nation, even in the world of nationalism, is an, is an island. Uh, that there is a certain moral minimum, uh, a certain uh, God-given standard of national conduct. But you don't describe what the moral minimum is, uh, even in a world of independent, sovereign, self-governing states. You simply sort of set out that there is some sort of minimum. Uh, could you expand a little bit? What is the minimum uh, for the conduct of, of you know, even the ideally constituted independent sovereign nation state in the world of, of you know, other such entities. And then second, a little bit less uh, supportively, uh, you, you quote uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, uh, his considerations on representative government, uh, and, and you say, in my view quite rightly, that Mill advances a common 19th century point of view in arguing that it is, quote, a necessary condition of free institutions that the boundaries of government should coincide in the main with those of nationalities. In other words, the English nation, if I take this right, should be composed primarily of the English. The German nation should be composed primarily of the Germans. The French nation, und so weiter, und so weiter, um, so to speak. Uh, what do, we, what do we get in a world that is like the world we have, where nationalities are salted and distributed all over the map, and where either, if one wants to achieve this world, you have to move people around to suit borders, or move borders around to suit people, and those borders will be very complicated if the people aren't moved. Okay, well, th th those are both super questions. Um, the, the problem, the, the problem of um, morality in the international system. I mean, it, 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 it's it's not even uh, it, it's not, not not that much more tractable than the problem of morality generally. I mean, every every every, um, uh, every national tradition, um, uh, every religious tradition, they, they 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 all have their own understanding of. Uh, of what morality is, and it it it, it was a a famous commonplace among the uh, the the early modern the the common lawyers uh, uh, in, in in England that uh, that you couldn't resolve that there there is no way to simply you know using reason to figure out what should be the mor morality everywhere. Um, John John Selden, who was the uh, uh, the, the the great seventeenth century political and le legal theorist, um, he, he um, um, uh, wrote. He was the principal author of the Petition of Right, which actually makes him the principal author of the first draft of America's Bill of Rights. So he should be better known. And his view on the subject was: there has not existed in the history of the world a single principle on which philosophers can't disagree. Right. In other words. No matter how obvious it seems, there are philosophers who, who are capable of disagreeing with it. And he said, well, if, if, if the most brilliant men and women of, of, of in history have not been able to come to a consensus on any significant sub subject, then it's unlikely that we here are simply going to sit down and, and, and figure out the answer to what the moral minimum is. The moral minimum in early modern Europe was associated with 
uh, with the Ten Commandments. Uh, both both uh, Luther and Calvin believed that the biblical Ten Commandments were an appropriate basis for, for natural law, and they, they, they thought that the legitimacy of, uh, of, uh, of nations depended, in, in, in the abstract, depended on the question of whether the rulers were um, uh, creating a, a, a polity in, in, in which these, these commandments were being, uh, being obeyed. Now, I can definitely understand that in a, you know, in a world in which people you know, don't, don't even read the Bible anymore, much less think that, you know, that, that, that it can guide us in fundamental moral things, we're going to have a, a significant argument about what the moral minimum should be. Uh, maybe some, some nations will even think there isn't the moral minimum. I, I certainly think that, that as Jews and Christians, as uh, uh, members of the Anglo-American tradition, we're, we're never going to give up, I hope, the idea that, that there is a moral minimum which is universally relevant. But knowing what the minimum is, even if you can figure out exactly what it is, I rush to emphasize is not the same thing as believing that it's your responsibility or that it's practical for you to impose it on all other nations. All right, so let, 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 let me take the most extreme case. If um, we're dealing with a case like Rwanda or Cambodia, there's no question, hundreds of thousands of people are dying, maybe millions. I certainly don't want, and this is, this is part of my general approach in this book, is, is I, I, I don't want to turn principles, which are good principles, into an absolute dogma or doctrine. It's very important if we're going to do empirical thinking rather than you know, some kind of rationalist, pseudo-mathematical thing, to understand that, that our principles, even if they're true, they may have limits. So even if even if national independence is is a wonderful principle, it still may have limits. Here's a limit. I certainly think, and I hope that you'll all agree with me, that if America or some other nation has sufficient power to be able to go into Rwanda or into Cambodia, to go in to put a stop to it and to get out rather than, than having to occupy the country for the next 50 or 100 years, if it's plausible that that could happen, then I think there's a, 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 a serious case to be made. I would definitely defend it. That there's a moral obligation to go in and to put an end to the killing. Right? But I would like to draw a very sharp distinction between that and the, the, the kind of um, moral obligation that today circulates in which um, you know, if, if a regime is, uh, is autocratic, if it's not a democratic regime, if it doesn't, if, if it doesn't uh, re recognize uh, individual liberties the way that we do, then quite a few people, I mean, surprisingly, many people in public, in responsible public positions will say that those regimes are not legitimate, right? I mean, this is, this is like a kind of French Revolution kind of stuff. Um, the, the idea that every, every regime in the history of the world has been illegitimate be, till today and still is illegitimate because, because it doesn't fit my understanding of morals. Now, I urge rejecting this kind of thinking. I think it's absolutely good for an American president faced with 
uh, and uh, and abuse. Let, let, let's say the, the 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 murder in cold blood of uh, of, uh, of a journalist. I think it's good for an American president to say what he thinks. It could be good for the for American president to use the leverage that he has in order to try to press for changes. Okay, I mean, these, this has always been the case in politics. It's never going to stop. People always leverage their views and try to get other governments to, to fall into line where they think it's important. There's nothing wrong with that. There is something wrong with thinking that every time that somebody deviates, right, every time somebody deviates on immigration policy or uh, their idea of how a Supreme Court is supposed to work or their idea of how an economy is supposed to work or their, their idea of how immigration is supposed to work, anytime somebody de deviates, well, we have the answer. It's time to start strong ar arming them. That's, I, I think that th there there is a line between, uh, between a concerned nation that's engaged with the world and wants to see it improved and an imperialist nation that simply can't understand the limits of our own abilities to judge other civilizations and other nations. With regard to the, to the, um, to the other point, um, what was the other point? Joshua Hill. Oh. Yeah. Uh, look, part of being realistic is that um, is recognizing that there, there is no way to uh, create a, a world of perfectly crafted nations in which borders are, um, as, as Mill proposes, borders are exactly congruous with, uh, with national identity and mutual loyalties. It's not possible. Um, every single um, solution that you're going to come up with for some uh, for some local conflict, uh, the, uh, the, the, the British versus the Irish, the, the, the Jews versus the Arabs, the Pakistanis versus the Indians, and every other conflict between nations that you're going to come up with, every single one of them, there is going to be uh, a, a, a range of possible places where the border should be, and there'll be legitimate and reasonable arguments on both sides. The same thing can be said about who gets to be independent. You know, in, in, in India, there's, there's 1,700, I'm told, 1,700 independent national, in, in, independent languages, right? Every single one of, and, and thousands more dialects. Every single one of those, and think of the, the, you know, the numbers of people involved. Every one of those languages is being spoken by millions of people who could, un, in some, under some circumstances, reasonably say, well, we should be independent too. One of the main arguments that made by the, that's made by my book, that I make in the book, is to say, look, there's no way to understand the kind of practical trade-offs that are going to be made unless you recognize that a world of independent nations is a compromise. It's a pragmatic compromise. I mean, I, I, I'm turning it into a, 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 a wonderful, you know, uh, uh, moral vision. But at its heart, this wonderful moral vision is based on a pra pragmatic compromise. At one extreme, there is anarchy. Anarchy means not of individuals, but every single family, every single tribe, every single clan will, will conduct its own foreign policy, and they'll all be constantly in tension with one another and at war with one another. Human beings lived like that for most of their history. If, if, I mean, that, that's where Abraham is living, where he, you know, he, he's sitting on a hill with his goats and sheep in a tent and, and his retainers, and he needs to go to war against some king. So he gathers some other clans together, and then they go to war against some king. Every, every family has an independent foreign policy. It's extraordinary. That's one extreme of, 
of a total freedom, which is also constant violence. And at the other extreme, there's eliminate all the freedom and suppress all the violence with a world empire that just you know, makes decisions and says, no, you're not going to fight. The, the national state is a compromise between the national state is a compromise between these two extremes, right? In other words, the, the idea of having a world in which in which there'll be a significant degree of of freedom for many nations doesn't it, do, it, it, it? It's not utopia. It doesn't perfect things. There's always going to be small peoples that are not strong enough to be able to to have an independent nation of their own. Right, let's take take uh, in, in, uh, in in Israel a well known well known example. There's a, a people called the Druze. Uh, throughout the Middle East, there are probably about two million Druze, may, maybe less, roughly. In Israel, there's about two hundred thousand Druze. So this is an independent national group. It, they have uh, they, they have their own religion. Uh, they're, they're a monotheistic people. They're not Muslims. They're not Christians. They're not Jews. They have their own religion. They have their own flag. They see themselves as a nation and, and completely reasonably. But they don't have a homeland. Now, maybe someday in Syria, we'll be able to create you know, a small homeland for the Druze, maybe. But for the time being, there's no such possibility anywhere you know, on the horizon. So w- w- what, what do you try to do? Well, you know, it, it may be a little bit like you know, like the Navajo in the United States. The, the Navajo, there's still 300,000 Navajo. They speak their own language. They, many of them raise their children in this language. And they call themselves the Navajo Nation and with reasonable justification. Now, they, they don't live under exactly the same laws that the United States does. So we, we have kind of the same situation with the Druze, although, although we don't have the, the, the history of persecuting the Druze that, uh, that, that uh, the, American Native, the Native Americans have gone through. But still, these are, these are real peoples. They're at this point in history too small. They don't have the, the military and the economic power to be independent. And we should be looking, if we're, if we're just, if we're decent, then we should be looking for a way to give them autonomy, to allow them to teach their own languages, their, uh, their, their, their own religion, and as much as possible to allow them to, 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 to feel that they're free, while at the same time understanding that, that they're a protectorate people. They, I mean, they, they can't exist independently. And so you have to come to some kind of a deal with them that will respect their self-determination at the same time as they respect the overall political structure of the, of the larger nation in which they live. That, 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 that's the goal. With regard to moving populations, uh, forcible moving populations is a, obviously it's a, it's, a, it's a decision of last resort. Um, I, I think that there are many, many places in the world where the problem is not that we aren't moving the populations. The problem is that the Western powers are not interested in borders, that in helping establish borders that reflect the actual national um, constitution of, of, of the peoples of the region. So an obvious example is America's you know, consistent and consistently incomprehensible insistence that there is an Iraqi nation, something that has never existed in history, and that it, an Iraqi nation can somehow be created by some kind of set of actions that are done by the Iraqi government with the help of others. Now, this is completely preposterous, and it always was. I mean, the, the Kurds are a people, the, the Kurds, 30, there are 30 million Kurds. 
if there's a nation on earth that you know that that, that des deserves consideration for independence, it's the Kurds. Thirty million people, the the, the uh, an honorable history going back to to the Medes. They have their own language. The, few peoples have been as persecuted as 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 the Kurds are at the, at the hands of the Turks and the Arabs and and the Iranians. And yet the Americans fighting side by side with the Kurds as the only reliable ally in northern Iraq and, and Syria consistently refused to give them tanks, consistently refused to help them in their bid to, to, to become independent. Now, not every people can become independent. Maybe the Druze can't. But, but this is a crazy case where America is arming the allies of the Iranians, the, 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 the Shiite militias, and giving them tanks instead of helping their own allies, the Kurds. Now, this kind of thinking comes from being unwilling to recognize that there is such a thing as a nation. A nation is a real, it's an actual existing entity of people who are, are, are mutually loyal to one another and have their own traditions and cultures. We can't give them all independence, but in some cases we could afford to be more humane if we understood the principle of national freedom and try to bring it peace to at least some parts of the world that don't know peace by redrawing the borders according to national and religious lines. I think we, we definitely have some time for some questions and we've got a microphone in the back. Uh, so uh, let's, uh, let's go uh, to the woman in the front here. If you can wait for just a second while the microphone circulates around. Uh, as always, uh, I would ask that uh, you keep your question in the form of a question uh, to the speaker uh, in deference to everyone else. Thank you. I'm Deborah Weiss, Center for Security Policy. That was a terrific presentation. Um, my question is a little different, but probably related to the question that Ted asked on the morality. I understand that different cultures and people have different definitions of morality, but I've always struggled with the idea of recognizing as legitimate, as a legitimate nation, a regime where the people didn't elect them. If they elected them and they all have different values, that's one thing. But if they didn't elect them and then they're tyrannical and violate human rights, I'm having, I was just wondering if you can address that. Sure, I, I understand the difficulty and I, and I sympathize with all my heart. I mean, I, 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 I feel the same thing. Uh, I, I think that all of us have been, um, uh, badly educated on the subject. Uh, the, 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 the problem with these, um, with our completely natural feelings to, to want to see other governments be the way that we think governments are, is that, look, it's, it's reasonable to have them, but the question is, what are you gonna, what are you gonna do about it? I mean, in the end, it's a, it's a, it's a practical, practical issue. Um, the, the United States does not have the ability to, to create a democratic regime, in, even in Iraq, much less in China or in Russia or in, 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 in many other places in the world. That, that, that ability does not exist. Now, it's, if you were willing to, to, do, to go to any length, like let's say you're willing to drop a couple of atomic bombs and, 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 and cause untold death and suffering, and then create an occupation which would, 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 would extend for, for, for a generation or two or three, then maybe you'd have the, the hope of being able to do it, maybe. I mean, I'm still skeptical. But 
nobody has the, the nobody has and nobody should have the kind of of uh, of Napoleonic willingness to simply sa- sacrifice millions of lives in order to establish a government that we will consider to be more legitimate. A, we have no no reason to believe that we're actually capable of making it come out that the, the the way we hope. And B, even if we did have a reasonable hope of making it that way, the moral decision that the hundreds of thousands of lives or millions of lives that are going to be lost in that kind of a war, even if we're just thinking of on the ground in some foreign country, that that trade-off, I think, is 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 not one we should be making. I wasn't really saying that we should go in and bulldoze places and and. So what do you want to do? I mean, I'm just wondering if we should necessarily, in our own minds, have a different, you know, just in even in diplomacy, should we always consider Iran equal to us and consider them? equal and have equal deference or should we at least know in the back of them of our mind that they're a nation state because there's nothing else we can do but that they're not equal to us and you know that it gives us a little wiggle room of when we can do something or when we can advocate or when we can ignore something or you know whatever the case might be i'm not saying that we should go in and you know commit mass murder. I, I i think i think that that statesmen should definitely within the uh, uh, the extremely complicated balance of judgments that you you come up with when you're pursuing a policy our po- policies are, are never simple there's never only one reason for them there's multiple reasons on on each side and the the ability to uh, to affect what we consider to be a more moral outcome in particular cases where we feel that we can influence things without doing tremendous damage in other areas that that's part of being a decent human being and that should be part of our politics i i, I definitely i definitely think think that's true i think the gentleman in the colorful the scarf there had his hand up first so uh let's let's go to him uh my name is pete leroux i'm from a business league in south africa my question is um between your room you're very positive about nationalism today in the sense that it i understand you to say that it, it is a decentralizing influence an anti-imperial influence and i th- that's a uh, i think very astute observation and then on the other hand nationalism goes back to antiquity so it's and between these two with the formation of sovereign states in the middle ages i want to ask you if if what we saw there was indeed nationalism because when france was formed under louis the 14th and in many other similar situations wasn't that an imperialistic impulse? Uh, many, very few people outside of uh, Paris could speak French, uh, and Breton and Occitan, and many of those languages were. So France was wasn't initially an imperialist impulse that created the France we know today. Even though I'm very much in agreement with your positive decentralizing influence of nationalism today. It, it, it's an excellent question. When, when I when I said at the beginning that I'll I'll have to pull back some. Th- this is a this is a very good example. There, there's no question, in, I think historically, that, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about nations as though they're kind of, you know, that they just exist, but they don't exist. Of course, they, 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 they come into being. And the way that they come into being often involves um, uh, all sorts of violence and, 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 and coercion in order to, 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 to create what later becomes 
a uh, what appears to be a, a unity. Now, I don't actually think that one one of the points I emphasize, I try to emphasize in the book, I don't I reject the idea that a nation is homogenous. Right? That that that's kind of like you know like like uh, you have to be a Nazi in order to I mean like like literally a supporter of Nazism in order to want purity and homogeneity in a nation. Nations are not homogenous. All nations consist of tribes. All nations consi are, 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 consist of, of um, uh, very different cultures, um, very different tribal groupings or such, regional groupings that have been brought together in a single nation through some kind of a process, which is in some cases uh, uh, largely voluntary, you know, out of self-defense, let's say, and in some cases involves a lot of coercion. Um, so the truth is that most of the actual historical examples involve both, even though, you know, you can, you can make the distinction between, between a, a nation freely created and one that didn't. So, you know, the, the United States is an example you know, pe people like to point to the United States as, 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 as look, in this example, uh, the, 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 the states came together voluntarily. So first of all, I'm not exactly sure that Rhode Island came together voluntarily. I, I, I don't know. But I, I say that sort of lightly, but I'll say more seriously that, that the, the construction of the United States involved a, um, an understanding of... Uh, uh, on uh, consistent understanding on the part of, uh, of of the Americans that there is a that there are cu cultural boundaries to diversity right so for example no American territory was ever included in the Union admitted into the Union unless it first had gotten a majority of English speakers and the, uh, the, the, the had brought the territory under under common law Right? And there's an exception of Louisiana, which, which was allowed to have the Napoleonic Code, and even there, only on condition that, that it be Americanized by translating it in, into English, and the Napoleonic Code, code courts would then be conducted in, in English. Consider the Mormons, right? the, 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 the campaign by the federal government to eradicate polygamy. Again, this, this is a, uh, an understanding of what the boundary of being American is. So English speaking, common law, um, uh, um, monogamy. We, we can come up with other indicators, but I think that, I think that that's sufficient. The 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 American government, until only a few decades ago, continued to fund the uh, 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 the efforts to Christian Christianize to teach Christianity to the to, to the Indians, and it wasn't because the United States wasn't a free country, right? It, that that it was trying to Christianize, you know. It, everyone within the United States, that they weren't trying to Christianize the Jews who were living here, but they did have an understanding of what the limits of what being an American was, which, which, which didn't allow for, for American Indian religion. They, they believed it, would be, it was important to bring them to Christianity. Now, the fact, the realistic fact that nations have these kind of... Um, um, implicit definitions of you know, what can be included within our nation, what's excluded, and that those are used uh, to shape the nation, sometimes in admirable ways and sometimes in, uh, in not admirable ways. I think that, that that fact is important to keep in mind, especially today when, when 
the United States has really pushed uh, um, uh, the lack of concern for how to, to maintain the unity, the cohesiveness, the integrity of the nation. It's really pushed the lack of concern for it um, to, to such an extreme that I, I don't know about you, but I, I really worry that the, that, that the United States is in the process of, of splitting into mutually delegitimizing tribes in a way that might not be recoverable. It's, it's really frightening. So the, the, whenever we're talking about a nation, we have to talk both about the, the diversity of the nation and federalism, the, the, the way in which we give autonomy to different parts of the nation, we make exceptions, we allow freedom as much as possible on the one hand. And on the other hand, the, the necessity, if the country, if the nation is going to have any future, the necessity of being able to point to boundaries beyond which diversity is 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 just not acceptable and and therefore try to concern yourself with it with some kind of central core that at least the great majority of the nation is going to to continue to be committed to as an active part of 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 conducting national affairs i i'm, I'm sorry that that sounds less less pleasant than you know than you know just you know than organizing a state by consent under you know John Locke's theory, but but I think it's more realistic. I think we've got time for one more question, and the gentleman seated right in the center here. Uh, we'll get the last uh, question word at least. Can I just remind everyone uh, that uh, after our speaker finishes answering this question, uh, there are books for sale out in the uh, front lobby if you'd like to buy one, and I'm sure our speaker would be more than happy to sign it for you. So please. Thank you. Um, I'm Alex. I'm a congressional intern at the Senate right across the street. Um, so you said during your presentation that you considered that there was not a thing, not an example in a history of a supranational entity that was functioning and self-governing, at least successfully. Um, you said that it simply did not exist. Um, so even though I don't agree with that, because I'm also French. But fun functioning as a limited government or as a democratic government. As a limited governing government, I mean, of course, imperial states, lots of imperialist states have existed. I'm just just saying that none of them developed the the traditions of limited government and individual liberties and and democratic governance that we saw develop in national states in Western Europe. All right, but that was not my question. I have a question. I want to play a bit devil's advocate for this. Um, so. Would you consider on the other side that for me, in my opinion, there there's there's such a thing as a nation state, but there's no concrete example of a nation state today. Maybe Japan would be the one resembling most what could be considered a nation state, but I don't consider it to be such a thing as a nation state today in the world. Um, why, why, why do you so, so not consider? Because if we consider a nation state to be the ultimate I mean, goal of nationalism in the end, creating a, nation, a state around peoples, which is a nation, right? people living in the same territory and creating a state out of that. For me, there is no such thing today as a nation state in the world like that. Uh, I simply cannot think of an example. If you have uh, one, I'll sure. do that too. Uh, America, Britain, France. I'm uh, French. What? I'm French. Okay, it's, it's my... true that the French have been giving up giving up their, their sovereignty to the European Union, but prior to that, it was a national state. I don't consider so. And I'm pro-European pro French citizen, proud of it too. Also, I consider myself to be a nationalist. So 
let's say. So what's wrong gonna, with as, France? How do, how does it not meet your standards? Because I believe that this idea of always scapegoating all the issues on the European, which is the easy way out of every issue we have today in our country, talking about France, have similar issues in the United States. Um, for me, nationalism is not a problem. I'm not saying that at all, but it's also compatible with the creation of a supranational entity that would be self-governing, at least to some extent. So my question would be, do you think there's an incompatibility <laughs> between nationalism and the creation of a supranational entity? Uh, yes, they are, they're absolutely completely incompatible. Every, every time that a power of, of uh, the power of an independent state is relegated upward to what I'm calling an imperial power, which is a power that does not, does not rec recognize national borders. Every time that you do that, you weaken the national state and you strengthen the, 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 the imperial state. But we're already at a point where the European Union, that many countries in the European Union have something close to 50% of their laws being legislated by the non-democratic bureaucracy of the European Union. And I mean, that just is the, the medieval imperial model, that, that there's a bureaucracy, it makes decisions, it's, control, it's, it, it, it's controlled by somebody from some other nation. That's the opposite of, of the national state model, which uh, is, you know, if you go all the way back to, 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 to the original biblical model again, the king and the prophets and the priests are all supposed to be drawn from your nation. It doesn't mean there aren't competent people from somewhere else, but the idea is that your people is going to determine its own fate, not that some other people is going to determine its fate. That's the key to the whole thing. And so there's, a there's an absolute trade-off, and, and we have to decide. We can't, we can't pretend that we don't have to decide. Each of us has to decide whether we ourselves, to the extent that we have any influence, prefer to see a world of independent nations, each one pursuing its own course, or whether we think that the considerations, and there are real considerations on the balance, militate in the direction of a vision in which an international bureaucracy, something like the Euro European Union, is going to, in the end, govern as many nations as possible, and maybe the whole world. That's a choice each of us has to make. We have to decide which side we're on. I know which side I'm on, but I propose that regardless of what side you're on, that, that you read my book, which <laughs> at least puts the ideas, I think, in a, in a clear light so you can, to help you figure out which way to go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for joining us here today at the Heritage Foundation. As I said before, books are available for sale out in the uh, front entryway. Thanks again to our speaker for a wonderful and provocative presentation. Thank you.